I see the commonalities in terms of the majority of these shooters, disaffected, disconnected um, young men as one of the symptoms of a body politic that has been trying to minimize the role of families and fathers and even masculinity for the better part of the last 60 years. Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. You know, we've been doing this for several weeks, and it seems like each week we get yet another really interesting American, someone who's not just a patriot, but someone who's really thoughtful about that and doesn't just say, I'm optimistic about the future, but they have reason to put behind that. That is some real substance behind it. And so I just want to thank you, the audience, for making the show possible. You know, the whole drill about giving us a rating and we only like five-star ratings. <laughs> You know, given that we have socialism in this country, I'm just asking you just to give it a five-star rating. That's it. But all kidding aside, this guest, a new acquaintance of mine, someone who's been at the Heritage Foundation today for some things, is someone I know is going to be a longtime friend of Heritage and a hope of mine, and that is Delano Squires. Delano, thanks for joining me. You're a contributor to Blaze TV's Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Yes. You and I keep track of one another on Twitter, and that's how <laughs> this all happened. I was sitting yeah. at home, minding my business, mm -hmm. trying to go to sleep, and I was trying to find some really thoughtful commentary mm. on Twitter on a day that here in D.C. the news was really challenging, which mm. is kind of like all the other days. Right. And I was reminded of how thoughtful you are. And I'm, I'm not just being a polite Southerner. <laughs> I really mean that. So I sent you a message, and I said, you want to want to be on the show? Yeah. And you said, absolutely. So thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's a real treat. So, <laughs> you know, as a Southerner, I know you're from New York, mm -hmm. um, which which means, you know, one of us is better than the other. <laughs> we won't say which is. That's right. <laughs> um, I always want to know mm -hmm. people that I've just gotten to, to meet what their story is. I mean, here you are, someone who is just very thoughtful about the present situation in America mm. for all of us, regardless of where we're from and right. what we look like. Right. You're someone who is very comfortable talking about touchy issues like, for example, how should conservatives talk about race? How should all of us, regardless of the color of our skin, deal with challenges to the nuclear family? Mm -hmm. How should we educate our kids? Mm. What do we need to be doing, especially as dads, mm -hmm. with our kids and, and with people generally? So we're going to cover all of that in the podcast. But so that people know that they really should home in on mm -hmm. what you have to say about these things, what's Delano's story? That's a good question. So um, I grew up in New York City. Um, my, my, fam, my parents immigrated to this country late 70s, early 80s. Mm -hmm. um, so they got married 1981. I came tumbling into the world nine months later. Where were your parents from? Barbados. Very good. Yeah. So I always tell people it's Rihanna country. So that's how people, <laughs> most people know it. Um, so, so I grew up in New York. I grew up in a large extended family, um, in a large church family. So we were in church basically every Sunday since the time I was three years old. And I am the type of person, when people say it takes a village to raise a child, I understand what that looks like in the best possible sense. So um, went to New York City public schools for all but two years and you know, graduated Benjamin Cardoza High School. Um, Went off to college, uh, University of Pittsburgh, studied computer engineering, which is an interesting fact, and just spent the majority of my 20s struggling to find, uh, find and start a career. Um, so my low point, I actually worked at a wholesaler for Claire. So anybody who has teenage girls knows what Claire's is, right? 
So at one point, I, I, I found myself sticking labels on chapstick. And I said to myself, I have a computer engineering degree. This should not be happening. And um, so I, I went through a series of odd jobs, temp work. Finally ended up in, in the D.C. area um, as a leasing consultant. That's what brought me to this, to this city. And then ended up finding, you know, full-time work, um, starting a career, going back to school. I went to grad school at George Washington University, did a master's in public policy um, with a concentration on, on social policy and started to write publicly um, probably around 2010. Started with a, a site called Black and Married with Kids that was created by a couple from this area who wanted to provide more positive images of black uh, marriage and family and, and parenting. And then from there, I wrote a little bit for The Root, which some people may be familiar with, for The Griot. Um, I had my own blog for a period of time. That got, I decommissioned that. And when I you know, came back up to the surface, did a little writing for The Federalist, and then have been writing for The Blaze ever since. So I'm probably the only person in the country who can say They've had both Joy Reid and Jason Whitlock as an editor. Um, so I, I think I, I, that is just a, a distinction that only I have. And so, so yeah, I, I write and talk a lot about, as you said, a, a lot of topics. So faith and, and race and um, family, uh, marriage, um, fatherhood, um, and just and even issues around, you know, what it, what it means to be an American. Right. Like I, I love this country. Um, and the opportunities provided for, for my family, for myself. And as I think about, you know, my, my wife and my kids, you know, and think intergenerationally, like I, I'm, I'm reminded, I think it was Benjamin Franklin who said, you know, this, we create a republic if, if we can keep it. Um, and I'm some, at times I'm, I'm wondering what, what that American experiment will look like in another generation, because there seems to be people who are hell bent on getting rid of it. Um, so yeah, I, I write about all those different topics and, um, that's just a, a little bit of my of my story. Well, thanks for that generous introduction about yourself. You yeah. know, you've, I'm sure you've had this experience because you interview interview people as well. That you ask someone that question, and some of us are a little more reticent than others. And and people need to know about your story because mm -hmm. it leads us. It leads me. Just as I was sitting there listening to you, to be optimistic about the future mm -hmm. because in in this very quiet demeanor you have, although perfectly confident mm -hmm. guy to guy. There's also this optimism mm. that we're going to get it right. And so I just want to let you know, and we'll let our audience know whether they're watching or listening, you and I are going to swerve into optimism here in a minute. Okay. But before we get there, <laughs> we're, we're going to do what I like to call reading reality truthfully. And I want to key in on this wonderful comment you made about Ben Franklin's statement about mm. keeping Republic and the, the, explicit comment briefly, but the implication you're making in there, which is that the Republic's sick. Mm -hmm. It's not healthy. And we don't say that in any sort of morally judgmental way right, about right. people, but we do say that about the Republic writ large. And mm -hmm. so what are the symptoms of, of that sickness? And then we'll home in on each of those if you'd like. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there are a number of s symptoms. Um, I mean, a lot of times people on the other side of the aisle will talk about, for instance, the, the recent mass shootings and they they will focus in on on guns right because obviously they they want to get they want the guns right they don't believe in the second amendment as much as they may say that they do i see the commonalities in terms of the majority of these shooters disaffected disconnected um young men as one of the symptoms of a body politic 
that has been trying to minimize the role of families and fathers and even masculinity for the better part of the last 60 years. Um, so I, I see that as one of the symptoms. I see a lot of the issues that we're having in education as a symptom. Again, oftentimes of, of family breakdown and of parents who have discharged all of their responsibility for their children and given it over to the state. And the state um, willingly taking it on because people who believe in big government are always looking for problems to solve. Some of those problems occur naturally. Some of them they create so that they can be the people um, who, who come in and solve them, right? They're, they're like uh, an ADT salesman who uh, breaks a window in a neighborhood so that the, the scared resident can say, hey, ADT, can you come in and put in a security system? Um, and in many ways, uh, that's, that's the way you know, some of our politicians function. Um, so, so anything having to do with the, the well-being of our children um, and the fact that so many of them are struggling, so many of them are on medications of one type or another, um, increasingly isolated, tethered to their phones at all times. I'm sure you've been out at restaurants. It's not, it's not just the teenagers, to be fair. I, I, I've been in the same boat. You'll have a family of five. Everyone, even down to the baby, is, is on a device. Um, these are all symptoms to me of a, of a body politic that's sick. And I think part of it is because, um, and, and, I, and I use that, that metaphor in terms of, I, I, I talk about the body politic, but when I talk about it, I'm actually thinking of a body. And if, if you are a surgeon who found that all of your patients were missing vital organs, at a certain point, you should ask the question, where are the hearts? Where are the lungs? You know, where, where's the muscle fiber? What, what, what happened? Why are all these patients missing these things? Because um, when those things are not there, problems are going to uh, ensue. And I think one of these that you've seen in our country is that certain parts of the body have, have grown very large and then other parts have atrophied completely. Um, and, and I know, again, I know we're going to talk more about the family, but I tend to focus in on the family um, and particularly marriage and fa- natural, the natural family, one man, one woman in one covenant union for one lifetime committed to one another and the children that they raise together. That's the building block of society, right? Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of social scientists like Brad Wilcox. Mm. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar yep. with his work. My friend, uh, Kevin Stewart in Texas, who does similar work to Brad's who, who just show through their studies that what you just said is, is slam dunk true. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, Someone has the right to disagree with that, but right. the, the data would not back up their disagreement, exactly. right? And and it, it strikes me just as a as a related aside as I'm I'm listening to you diagnose this, Delano. That's the computer engineer in you. Yes, that those of us who are <laughs> th- those of us who are liberal arts guys mm-hmm. just say this is the problem. There's some correlation, so right. there's got to be causation. You you're a guy who's really picking it apart, and therefore, and, and I really do mean this. You just like the sociologist, like like Brad Wilcox. I think can lead us to a solution. Hmm. And so you and I can talk about policy. We can talk right. about some of the research, which I know you've got at your fingertips. But the thing that really strikes me about what you do is that you and your family are heavily invested in the community that you live in. Right. And and I to me, as a historian, more of a social historian than anything, that's really the beauty of America because that's the beauty of human nature in any mm-hmm. society, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's Barbados or mm-hmm. America mm-hmm. or Eastern Europe or, or, or parts of Latin America. So how do we get from this pretty dire diagnosis, this dire reality, which I think you've depicted accurately, to fixing it? Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to say one thing because you, you talked about community and, and 
um, I'm, I'm thinking back to my story, right? How I was talking about how I grew up and, and I'll, I'll share a short sort of story that ties in a lot of these things. I remember having distinctly as a kid, my family, we would go to the carnivals that were put on by the sons of Italy. Now, anybody who knows about Queens, particularly this part of Queens, I grew up was called Rosedale Queens. Um, Bill Morris did a documentary on, I think it was called The Way Things Used to Be. And it talked about Rosedale and some of the racial tension that they had there. I mean, to the point there were cross burnings in the late seventies in, in that neighborhood as working class Italian and Irish families were moving. Um, some were moving out and then working class black families were moving in and there was tension there. But to me, having my immigrant family, right? Black people from the Caribbean, Jamaica, Trinidad, Barbados, wherever, going to the Sons of Italy Festival, where I first learned what Zeppelis were, and them welcoming us and us benefiting from the community that they had built with those lodges that other people experienced, you know, in other parts of the country, that to me is like the quintessential American story, right? So it's, it's yes, we may be from different tribes, quote unquote, but that doesn't mean that we can't um, get along and, and, and work together and live together as neighbors. So when it comes to addressing some of these things, again, I, th- I think the breakdown of the family um, is, is obviously one of the big factors. And it's not just a natural disintegration. A lot of it is active and attacks and antagonism towards the family from um, big government and the state. So I think one of the things that we have to do is to publicly identify that problem and then work through policy and culture to wake that part of the body up. I'll say it to people like this. If, and people, I think, after working from home for the last couple of years would, would appreciate this. If you've been sitting at your desk for eight hours straight and your leg falls asleep, you don't smack yourself in the head for 30 minutes. You tap your leg because you have to tap the part of the body that's fallen asleep to get it to wake up. And in the same way, I think we need to do that for the family. So again, that could be policy interventions. Um, that can be using culture, the organs of culture, to promote positive messages, um, big business, social media. There are all different ways that we can you know, activate that part of the body that needs to wake up. Um, and as I said, I started writing for a site called Black and Married with Kids. That couple used documentaries. Um, I think they did at least five documentaries on marriage and manhood, on generational wealth. I actually met my wife at the third documentary screening. We didn't know each other. We happened to sit on the same row. But then they went on to do something more. They started marriage cruises. So there would be 60, 70 couples from across the country. Some even came internationally. And we would be on a seven-day cruise. And in between stops, um, you know, when, when we were just out to sea for an entire day, We'd have sessions on communication, on blended family, on entrepreneurship, on, on wealth creation. Like those are tangible things that this couple did to help people build and sustain their marriages. Um, so I, I think th- there are a number of ways to do it, but I think the big part is, is addressing it. And I, I'm thankful for conservatives because conservatives will say, just, just you, know, you, you said this in the beginning, like the family is the building block, right? The, the RNC um, platform of 2016 and 2020 had an entire section talking about the natural family as the building block of, of civic society. When I went to the Democratic Party platform and I, and I 
did a word search on family or marriage, the only time they talk about marriage is as it relates to arranged marriages in foreign countries. That's it. It's telling. It's telling. And, and, that, and that shows the difference in, in, on the two sides, right? One believes in family and the role of, of marriage and uh, fathers in terms of um, pr- providing for and protecting for women and children. And the other believes in the government as everyone's dad. And I've said this before, um, the, the government is a, is a terrible husband and an absent father because it just has too many households to support. Um, and it's one of those things where we just, we need to get back to the natural order as it relates to the role of, uh, particularly of men in a society. Um, and I think part, the first step in that is naming that um, as something that is a, is a, that is an ideal. And it's harder and harder in American life, especially in media, mm-hmm. to name that, right? Mm-hmm. That that just saying that, just diagnosing a reality <laughs> that everyone knows, it, it, it doesn't matter what demographic group someone's mm-hmm. from, mm-hmm. Socio- socioeconomic, racial, whatever the case may be, it's a reality mm-hmm. that the nuclear family is an objective fact that the nuclear family has deteriorated in the last two generations of the mm-hmm. United States. It is, I guess, debatable, but social scientists would argue and show data that there are there is a crisis in masculinity, oh, not absolutely. in this you know macho masculinity that is, that's that's was depicted for a generation in Hollywood, but the kind of masculinity that is just as important as proper femininity mm. and the complementarity of that mm-hmm. in the building block of of society, the family is assailed not just in the airwaves, but it's assailed in congressional hearings now. Yes. yes. Now, we're not going to ruin this episode <laughs> by talking about D.C. politics, right. congressional politics. Right. What we're going to do is focus on what's upstream from all of that and hopefully can affect it. And so it leads me to this question, which is a little social science, but mm-hmm. I, I want to lean into what you do just, just as a guy, but also as a computer engineer. Mm-hmm. Social scientists would say that one of the reasons that all of that has happened is because simultaneously the institutions of civil society have also deteriorated, mm. whether that be our colleges, our public schools, or, you know, my favorite examples, Rotary Clubs, Kiwanis Clubs. And right. they're my favorite because that had nothing to do with partisanship. Right. I mean, I've been members of a member of a few Rotary Clubs around the country, Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, libertarians. Wacko academics on the left, <laughs> wacko academics on the right. Right. Yeah, everyone got along for this shared purpose. But the point is, it's become harder for us even to say as Americans, we have a shared vocabulary. Mm. I sometimes, in spite of my optimism, this is the question, can get a little pessimistic about our ability to revitalize those institutions. But what I'm hearing you mm. say, tell me if, 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 if what you're implying is, is uh, what I'm summarizing, that there are some new institutions emerging, like the website you mentioned mm-hmm. and others new media that ought to give us hope that those are going to be some of the new institutions that allow us to rebuild the family, rebuild masculinity and femininity. And therefore we should be optimistic. Yeah. I mean, one, I'll say this, one of the institutions that, that I'm sure we'll both um, see the importance of, but didn't mention explicitly is, is the church or, or generally speaking, faith-based institutions. And I think part of what's happened is that in many respects, politics have replaced religion in terms of that binding agent for people. Um, and a lot of people, when, when you see um, the, the anger and the zeal, right, after, let's, let's say, after the Dobbs decision, you, you see how passionate certain people get about the, the thought that uh, women won't be able to have abortions anymore. It's like it, 
it brings out something in them. Um, and, and I think part of that is because we've become a less religious people. Now, again, now uh, every, I'm an engineer, but every once in a while I'll, I'll quote the founding fathers. So when, when, I, when John Adams says that, you know, the constitution is meant for, I'm paraphrasing, a moral and religious people and it's unfit for any other, we have to ask ourselves what happens in, in an immoral and post-religious society. Um, politics can't be the binding agent because as you said, like the, the society will just become um, utterly divided because of partisanship. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think one of the things that has to happen is that those faith-based institutions and, and as a Christian, I, I think specifically about the church, have to take their their role, right? I, I think of society in 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 three spheres, right? You have the government sphere, you, know, you have the family and the home, um, and and you have the church. So, and each of them has an area of authority. Now they they interact, but it's not to say one has you know sovereignty over, over the other. And um, I think I, to the extent that I have optimism, it's a realistic optimism. And when I say that, I mean certain people are not, they do not at this point want to move forward. It's hard to build community with people who genuinely think that men can get pregnant. And that may seem like conservative red meat, but that mindset impacts so many other things. It impacts the way schools teach about sex, sexuality, and gender. Um, it impacts the type of uh, media that, that children and adults are fed. Right. So if, if you think that certain things are necessary and kids need to learn about them early on, you'll turn around and see that, you know, Sesame Street now has a, a transgender character. And that, that, that comes from a particular way of thinking. So I'm, I'm not of the mind that everyone is going to have, um, you know, this conversion experience. I would love if that was the case. Um, I do think our country is in need of a great moral and spiritual reformation. Um, I think the culture war is really the tip of the iceberg of a spiritual battle that is, you know, raging underneath. Um, but I also acknowledge that some people can't, they're not going to move forward. Right. And, and it may be that they're going to be certain enclaves where you just know this is, um, this is the part of town where they have drag queen story hour, where the people who work for federal government are into puppy play, so to speak. Right. And I'm and I'm I'm not just making this up. I mean, these are people who are within the Biden administration. If this is what certain communities want, it may be that the future looks like they we just keep that on that side, and and the people who want to build in in you know in the sense of um, sort of common values and common interests, we can move forward here on this side. That is a possibility, and and I say that because I, again, I, I I'm thinking of the body. You, you don't want your body to unite with cancerous cells, right? They either have to be radiated or they have to be excised, but they, they can't move forward together. So once you get rid of that, then the rest can, can come together and, and you can be a more healthy person. But right now, there's so many things going on in every area of you know, our political culture. And on the left, no one ever says this far and, and no further. Um, so I think people, whether they identify as conservative or not, at a certain point, they're going to have to ask, like, what does that future look like? And it may mean certain people can't, <laughs> they can't go with us. So. No, I, I mean, I, I think I happen to agree with everything you just said. 
And I think your analogy about a, a patient with cancer, unfortunately, is very apt. Yeah. And and it leads me to make the observation, and I'll ask a follow-up question. Mm -hmm. The observation is <clears throat> your comment about someone on the left that is no one on the left mm -hmm. saying, this has gone far enough. Mm -hmm. Occasionally, when someone left of center does, does that, <laughs> they're gone yeah. from the left. Think about Barry Weiss, mm -hmm. you know, one of the founding faculty members of the University of Austin. Yes. Barry would not be comfortable with many parts of this conversation. Right. From, from the standpoint of agreement, she would be comfortable with it, the, with the fact that, yeah, people can sit around and talk about this, right? Right. right. But she's not welcome in most leftist circles, right? Just mm -hmm. as one, you know, mm -hmm. rather, rather famous example, and God bless her for her courage. Mm -hmm. And for that new institution for, for being formed. But the really the follow-up question that I wanted to ask Delano is that here at Heritage, when we're having these conversations, sometimes about what we do with policy, mm -hmm. but increasingly how we at Heritage can kind of reformulate ourselves to doing work in addition to policy, mm -hmm. to work that helps to revitalize not just institutions, because that sounds so abstract and right, cold, right, right. but community, human relationships. Yes. I, I lament that I think the reality is we're already living in two Americas. Yes. And it isn't just, you know, these these kind of funny maps that we see on Twitter with a bunch of liberals on both coasts. <laughs> and, and, and what the, those suggest is that every single American between the coast is a red meat conservative. That's not right. the case. You you touched on, you, you said specifically, it's within the same communities, the same yeah. cities that you will have enclaves of believers, non-believers. Right-minded thinkers, not right-minded thinkers. How do we how do we get past that? I think both you and I, because of our our shared Christian view, would say, well, we're going to be optimistic. Mm -hmm. But like on the ground, the sidewalk level of walking into our houses and in, in interacting with neighbors or people on the street, is it possible to endure that long enough as a polity, as a mm -hmm. body politic, mm -hmm. to get to the point where the church other institutions of civil society, and then finally our politics can actually cement a real healing. Possible, yes. Um, is it likely in today's climate? No. Caveat. It's, it's possible in today's climate if people just say, when we get together as a family, as a community, we're not going to talk about politics. That's basically the only way. Because once these conversations get started, and I, I've been in quite a number of them, um, they can get very heated. Um, and, and it's one thing when it's just ideas being thrown around, but to the extent that ideas turn into policy and, and, you know, we were talking about education earlier today. Again, I, I, I never thought there would be a day in which the mayor of the largest city in this country, right? Eric Adams in New York city tweets his support of drag queens in libraries and schools. Now libraries, you know, drag queen story, I started out in libraries. That's one thing that's voluntary. Parents choose to take their children there. Obviously, I question that choice and their sanity. But schools are compulsory. And when he makes a commitment to turn New York City um, into a place where every drag queen can feel comfortable to express themselves, you know, to my kids or to my, my best friend's kids, that's a problem, right? And, and I don't know how to get around that outside of one naming it and then having, you know, full court press on, on him from both the political and economic and social spheres. So it, it, it's hard to say what that future will look like. I mean, one of the beauties of this country is that you have many people who believe many different things living side by side. And we've done that you know, pretty successfully for the last couple of generations. But again, we, we had an assumed center. And even though 
um, everyone in the, in the country was not a Christian. It was a Christianized culture. So you would have prayer before, sometimes in school, before you know federal or local uh, government meetings. Um, you, the Ten Commandments would be outside of the courthouse, that type of thing. But as those things are moved out, and particularly as faith is moved out of the public square, what's replaced it is you know the idea of politics as a god. Um, and one thing I learned from reading the scriptures is that those false idols are very demanding, full of wrath and no grace or, or any mercy. Um, and I think to your point, you talked about Barry Weiss. M- most recently, it was uh, the singer and, and actress Macy Gray who made the mistake of being honest about what she thinks womanhood is. And in the course of four days, she went from saying, I know for a fact that a person who has surgery can't magically turn into a woman to saying, well, being a woman is a vibe, whatever that means, right? So it, it, it's, it's, yes, the institutions need to be revived, right? Yes, this community, members of a community or even a family, we, we can talk to one another about certain things, but one of the things that's needed more than anything else is just a sense of courage um, because I think courage begets courage in the same way that fear begets fear. Um, so when you see someone like Macy Gray fold so publicly, um, it's good to know that there are Barry Weisses out there who who will stand, uh, stand in the gap and stand courageously on this particular issue, even as you said, even if we don't agree on every other issue. That's well said. And and I think about you know, your your examples of Macy Gray and and Barry Weiss, but I also think about how illustrative the example of Eric Adams is, mm. because there is very little about Eric Adams' career that would suggest that he was anything but a centrist or a center left guy. Correct, correct. And those of us on the right had every reason. I mean, I, I have said this publicly, mm-hmm. certainly not any kind of endorsement, which I can't do as the head of a C3, but I just had great hope for him. Mm-hmm. I thought, you know, given his profile, his personal achievement, that he was going to be really important for that for that city. And so much so I thought, man, this guy's got a bright political future, but even he was co-opted by the radical left. Right. And, but the good news is for, it seems as if for every Eric Adams, we have a Ron DeSantis Mm. and DeSantis has come up in a couple of our conversations today, public panel. We had a a lunch we were having with some friends and, 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 and actually the headline would be his courage. Yes. That, that courage, I mean, imagine this is the governor of Florida mm-hmm. taking on not just any corporation, right. not just any business right. that happens to have a whole bunch of special tax breaks, but Disney. Mm-hmm. I mean, what many people around the world would almost associate with American identity itself. itself right. And he took them on and he won. Yes. There's a lesson there, isn't there? Uh, absolutely. I mean, so, so one of the lessons is, is the problem, right? The problem is that as is the case in other parts of the society, um, corporations have forgotten their place, right? So I, I think back to Mitt Romney when he said, you know, corporations are people too. Th- that was in the age in which corporate interests neatly aligned with, you know, conservatism in the Republican Party. We're no longer in that age and people need to understand what time it is. So we're in an age now where um, the CEO and the HR director at any Fortune 500 company are thoroughly in bed with the Democratic Party, right? So things have changed so much that the the upper management of these companies is fully leftist. And it's the working class 
who now need a new political home because it's it's the workers, it's the guys who drop off and deliver the water who are being subjected to these crazy um, uh, DEI training sessions about uh, being anti-racist and so on and so forth, right? They're the ones who have to sit through a Robin D'Angelo seminar. Um, so part of it is understanding the way the dynamics are, are shifting in our political culture. Any conservative that thinks that corporate, corporate America is on its side um, is fooling themselves. Uh, I think, I'm not sure if every Fortune 500 company signed off on the Equality Act in terms of support. If it's not every, it's the vast majority of them made those public commitments. So, so that's one part of it, right? How, how the landscape is changing. But the other part of it, to your point, is the courage that Governor DeSantis showed in facing down Disney and the teachers unions and encouraging the restoration of public order when he said, look, if you're a police officer in, in one of these other cities who want to defund the police, we'll take you on and we'll give you a nice little bonus. Um, those are all things I think that other, other governors um, should be, be uh, emulating because it's the type of thing that you, you need. It's not just about political rhetoric. And, and one of the things that I've noticed is that um, both on a national and even local level, a, a lot of our politics have devolved into entertainment. It's all about who can have a viral moment. It's all about who has the quickest quip. But it's like, no, we elect people to represent our values and our interests. We don't elect them so that we can get on board with their agenda and advancing their career and help them sell their books. Um, so, so I think Governor DeSantis is probably better than anyone else that I could think of, and certainly on the conservative side, um, mixes the ability to uh, sort of engage in rhetorical jujitsu with actual tangible policy wins. And that, to me, should be a model for, for any other governor of any other state. I agree with that. And in a lot of ways, DeSantis personifies where I think the conservative movement isn't just going, but where it is it present is. tense. Yeah. You know, yeah. <clears throat> I've been saying for a little while, along with, with others who are smarter than me, that the conservative movement is going to be a multi-ethnic, more working class coalition than it's mm -hmm. ever been. Being you know, a guy from a, a working class family that at best lived paycheck to paycheck on mm -hmm. the Gulf Coast, I, I can relate to that. I can mm -hmm. understand that because of my experience. But so it makes perfect sense to me. But when DeSantis takes on Disney, mm -hmm. regular common sense Americans say, that's my guy mm -hmm. because that's how life is. Yeah. And we're tired of you know, all the fancy nuanced talk of the politicians, of the academics and so on. But all of that to say, I think the more that we can, conservatism can be the movement of people who shower after work mm. rather than before work, mm. the better off we are. That's now, a great point. someone's in the audience say, well, I shower before work. Well, we want you to, <laughs> but you, you get the point. Or shower at work. Yeah, yeah sure. Oh, there you go. That yeah. might mean you got to have a gym at work. Yeah, that, that, that's good too. Yeah. But as we think about, uh, Kind of wrapping up here, although I would talk to you for a few hours, mm -hmm. a couple, couple last questions. Sure. And, and the one in a lot of ways I'm most interested in asking you, and not just because you're a black American, mm -hmm. but because you're thoughtful, my own academic work for what it's worth is on the African-American family. Mm. And so I've spent my entire professional career studying. And what inspired wow. me to do that was the Moynihan Report, mm. the 1960s. And then as a historian, I worked backwards into the 1700s, right. a period that you study, you, you know well. But most sociologists, of course, have taken that forward to the, the 21st century. But because I'm now equally interested in the future of conservatism, mm -hmm. I think about how difficult it is for 
especially white conservatives, mm. to talk about racial tensions. And I think probably the thing that got me following you on Twitter and reading you know, almost everything that you've written is that you're so thoughtful about that. And so I just kind of want to give you the the floor here, Delano, to to give us a lesson about how we can do that in a way that's not for political purposes. I want right. to be really clear because that's not why you're saying mm -hmm. it. It's not why I'm asking it. But so that we can build community mm -hmm. and so that this movement, which reflects objective truth, can speak to racial tensions in a way that helps to heal them. Yeah. So, so for me, any conversation about race, I situate firmly in my Christian faith because I believe in Genesis 127. Genesis 127, when it says that God created male and female in his own image, that's all of us. We all have the same common creator, right? So we may have different skin tones and different shades and come from different countries, but our worth and value comes from the fact that we were made by the same God. Um, that being said, I mean, race has always been an issue, you know, in, in our country. Race and racism have always been issues. But but I think a thoughtful way to think about it um, is to juxtapose the anti-racism of Dr. Ibram Kendi with the anti-racism of Frederick Douglass. Um, Kendi's anti-racism says that any disparity between racial groups is caused by racist policy. Um, he removes all agency from black Americans. His, his, his story is basically, you know, if, if there are differences in educational outcomes is because of racist policy. So in that sense, um, you know, Black folk become objects, right, who are acted upon, never individual agents who can do for themselves. Frederick Douglass, on the other hand, is a man who, at the height of his career as an abolitionist, was saying, look, if we, if, when, when and if the slaves are emancipated, allow them to do things for themselves. He said, at, at every turn, our white brothers and sisters have always offered benevolence instead of justice, right? So when I, when I read Douglas, I see a man who says, look, again, all the same creator, right? All of our lives have inherent worth and value, but we should, and because of that, we should be subjected to the same laws as any other man. Don't, don't rob my opportunity to take responsibility for my own life because you know you would never do it for yourself, right? So I, I think one of the ways that we can talk about race is to situate it in, in those realities that we come from the same creator and that there's no such thing as equality in a society in which one group is subjected to a different set of standards than everyone else. You can't have equality that way. Now, the left will say that they want racial equality that way, but it, that's really a sort of a, a paternalistic approach to what they call equality. Uh, it's paternalistic hierarchy. That's really what it is. So, so for me, when I think about race, I think about seeing people as, again, as image bearers, first and foremost. Um, I, I don't believe in racializing common human behavior. I don't think any race or ethnicity has a monopoly on any verse or, or on any vice or virtue. Right. So I don't I don't racialize anger. Um, I don't racialize fatherlessness. Um, I don't racialize you know, crime. Um, and I think there are ways in which we can see the commonality that runs through all of these issues. And I think that is one way that you can build partnerships and coalitions. But a lot of times on both the left and the right, there's a desire to insert um, race where it shouldn't be. Now, that doesn't mean we can't talk about culture, 
And that's different. And I know you, you and I, you know, we've talked about that, that video going around from Minneapolis. We had some very young children that happened to be black kids who were, you know, cursing at and, and hitting police officers. And, and to me, it's like that, that could happen in any community. That doesn't mean it's equally likely that it would happen in any community. So what is possible doesn't mean uh, just because something is possible here doesn't mean it's equally prevalent everywhere else. But I think if we want to address our issues, to your point, you talked about Moynihan, um, we should see them from that, that common perspective because the, the white out of wedlock birth rates in America today are higher than the black ones were when Moynihan issued basically a national call to action. Um, it's unfortunate that crisis has to be the thing that brings us together, but, but I think it's possible if, if we see each other again, as, as cre- created by the same God, as capable of the same levels of agency, away with this nonsense that someone is privileged um, just because of their skin color or that they are eternally oppressed because of their skin color. Uh, I think accepting any of those narratives is, is toxic, uh, particularly for the body politic. And, and really, it's like I, I'm trying to raise my, I have a daughter and two sons. I, I'm trying to raise my children um, to engage with everyone confidently. But if I tell them that their skin color makes them oppressed or that people are going to dislike them or hate them or resent them, um, when they go out into the world, they'll always be begging for the affirmation of people that they don't know. And that's actually one of the unintended consequences of um, uh, sort of the disintegration of the nuclear family, particularly in the black community. You know, you and I both know this. One of our primary, our two primary roles are protection and provision. When fathers are not there and um, you substitute the father's role and, and, or you give the father's role to, to external parties, what ends up happening is that you have, um, particularly, I'm, I'm thinking, particularly in the black community, every time I saw a black person demand that a white person affirm that black lives matter, I hear the echo of a fatherless child. Because part of what a father does is affirm his children. And he says, your life has value. And when you're not getting that in your own home or your neighborhood or community, you have to go seek it from somewhere else. And you have to seek it from government or you have to seek it from the people who you think are um, the ones who are going to help free you and liberate you. Um, and so that's why, uh, again, I- I'm, I'm totally on board with the notion that to save the Republic, we have to rescue the American family. Um, and I think that is something that everyone, regardless of race, color, or creed, can, can get behind. Thank you for the whole conversation, Delano Squires. Thank Absolutely. you for closing on an optimistic note. Look forward to having you back. Look Thank forward you. to working with you. Anything that we can do to help you in your own efforts. Thanks for being with me. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining the Kevin Roberts Show again. Obviously, the star is always the guest, and that's <laughs> evidenced this week by Delano Squires. Look forward to seeing you next time. In the meantime, take care. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.